0: You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit JcastNetwork.org. I want to start with a uh, brief prayer. Ein Haslichot, source of uh, forgiveness and reconciliation, we pray that uh, our learning tonight joins for the uh, holy purpose of transforming our hearts and transforming our souls in preparation of the, this season of chuva of, of turning and returning, and in uh, preparation for living more whole, more holy, better, and more fulfilled lives. We pray that uh, whatever um, angst or anxiety that we uh, carried with us, maybe experienced today, we can leave behind and escort out of the room for, uh, for the time being. We can re- reunite with it later. And uh, we pray that, uh, that uh, we can uh, do some uh, learning tonight that uh, can speak to our hearts and souls. Amen. Amen. So uh, when I was uh, in rabbinical school, uh, so first when I was dating Adira and then when I was engaged to Adira and then finally when I was married to Adira, um, I uh, helped Adira's parents uh, with their, uh, they had like a chavurah minion for the high holy days in Winnipeg, Canada where they've lived for um, about uh, 40 years I think at this point, maybe more. Um, and although they just, uh, as of yesterday, are, are now uh, moving, retiring to St. Louis, where their where their kids are, but they've been having this uh, chavurah high holy day service for uh, for many many years, a couple of decades, um, and uh, and so I went up to help uh, them with it. And as a as someone who was just dating their daughter, it was a, um, a, a pretty um, intimidating experience, to say the least, not the least of which was uh, that I was still in in rabbinical school and and here are these uh, great teachers of Torah, which my in-laws are. Um, And uh, uh, the the service is really great. I mean, they uh, um, uh, cut out, strip down a lot of the High Holy Day liturgy and fill it with a lot of uh, different readings and songs. And one song that my mother-in-law... Uh, loves a lot, um, and, uh, and, and I'm going to, just because this is going to be in cyberspace, I'll say to her an early happy birthday, because it's her birthday tomorrow, um, the 18th of September, but also Chai Elul, the 18th of Elul, which was just a few days ago. It's happy birthday, Ima. Um, and uh, so uh, um, my mother-in-law and my father-in-law, too, uh, really love um, and, are, and were students of uh, Rabbi Shlomo Karlobach, um, and so a, a good portion of the service is inspired by uh, teachings and songs that uh, um, Reb Shlomo uh, taught to his students, which, uh, of which my in-laws were some. Uh, one of the songs that uh, um, kind of plays as sort of a refrain that my mother-in-law uses throughout the High Holy Day uh, services, and they do all the High Holy Day services, um, as a refrain throughout the High Holy Day services is this song, Return Again, by uh, Rev. Shlomo. Um, and so I, I just want to start out tonight by playing the song for you if you've never heard it. I'm going to play the version uh, by Rav Shlomo's daughter, Neshama, um, uh, for a couple reasons. One, because it just um, lights my soul on fire every time I hear it, and two, uh, because it was the... First thing I can find on YouTube. So um, but it's the same song and he, she does this with um, uh, with the Green Pastures Baptist Church choir. It's really just amazing. So
1: return, again. return to the land of your soul. Return again. Return again, return to the land of the soul Return to who you are, return to what you are, return to where you were born and Born again, return to who you are, return to what you are, return to where you are born and reborn again. Return again, return again, return to the land of your soul. Return again, return.
0: to after the class is over, you can uh, uh, listen to the whole song. It's just really breathtaking. Uh, but that's what I want to talk about tonight. I want to talk about this song and uh, as, a, as a way, as an avenue into what Yom Kippur is all about or can be about uh, for each of us. Um, because I think that this idea of return again to the land of your soul, return to who you are, to what you are, to where you are born and reborn again. That, I think, is really the essence, the core, the car of, of Yom Kippur. So uh, in the course of our conversation, I threw some text. I want to talk about exactly what I mean by that. What does that mean to return to the land of your soul? What does it mean to return to who you are, to what you are? What does it mean to be born and reborn again? And I think that that is uh, hits at the heart of what Yom Kippur is about. The first thing that you might notice about that, the word return um, is should be evocative of one of the central themes of the High Holy Days, What's that to teshuvah. teshuvah, right? The word teshuvah literally means to turn, the, the act of turning around, right? So the idea of returning again um, is uh, is is sort of a play on teshuvah. Teshuvah means sort of like to stop where you are and turn the other direction, right? To go a different direction than you're going. But what what Reb Shlomo is doing with it is he's saying that it's not so much a turning that we do on the High Holy Days from the kind of behaviors and activities that we've done, or at least not only an act of turning. It's an act of actually returning, of going back to to who we actually are at our core and who we're supposed to be. All right, so let's look at some text to, uh, to get us there, okay? Um, and uh, I know we had to move it kind of a brisk clip because we started a little bit late. So we'll try to do this as, uh, as, as, uh, with a, as much alacrity as possible. So Leviticus chapter 16 is basically the source text for Yom Kippur. And um, I will admit to you, it is a weird one. Okay, So maybe some of you are familiar with this, maybe uh, some of you aren't. I cut it a little bit just to, um, uh, to, to focus on the... Aspects of Yom Kippur and the ritual that I want, wanted us to focus on, but I didn't really cut out much. I mean, I can tell you what I cut out. I cut out some aspects that were about the priest atoning for his family, um, in addition to what we'll see atoning for the whole congregation, etc. Okay, so, um, but that's really all you have, and then you have a sort of preamble to it it's in the first couple of verses of chapter 16. Um, that, uh, that link this ritual of Yom Kippur to the death of Aaron's sons, which happened a few chapters before that. Um, and uh, what the connection is there, um, I think, is an interesting topic, but not for now. Okay? So, and from the Israelite community, he, he being the high priest, who we're told in those first couple of verses is the only person who's ever able to go into the inner sanctum, the Holy of Holies, the Kodesh Kedoshim, the, the most sacred spot. In in this case, in the Mishkan, which is the portable tabernacle, the portable sanctuary that the Israelites had in the wilderness, uh, but later the temple in Jerusalem. So, in the temple in Jerusalem or in the Mishkan, there was um, a spot called the Holy of Holies. It was sort of in the middle of the temple, um, which which had the most uh, sanctity of, of of any spot. So, you have you know there's this great reading in the matzor that, uh, uh before the avoda, before the, um, uh, sacrificial service of the liturgical version of the sacrificial service, uh, on Yom Kippur, late morning Yom Kippur. So many people, uh, uh may, I, I assume not people in this room, but many people are not yet, are not there anymore when we're doing this, but there's this great reading that talks about, right, that, uh, um, uh, you know, in all the universe, uh, there's a special place and that special place is earth. And in, And on earth, the most sacred place is the land of Israel. And in the land of Israel, the most sacred place is Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, the most sacred place is the Old City. And in the Old City, the most sacred place is the Temple Mount. And on the Temple Mount, the most sacred place is the Holy Temple. And in the Holy Temple, uh, the most sacred spot is the Holy of Holies. Okay? And we're told in those first couple verses of chapter 16 that only the high priest, so the most, you know, sacred special of all the priests, is only allowed to enter that Shrine that spot on one day a year, um, which is the holiest day of the year or what we now call the holiest day of the year, even though that terminology isn't used in the Torah, Yom Kippur, right? So one person in this one spot, one time a year. Okay, that's what it says. And from the Israelite community, he, the high priest shall take two he goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall take the two he goats and let them stand before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he shall place lots upon the two goats, one marked for the Lord and the other marked for Azazel. Strange. Aaron shall bring forward the goat designated by lot for the Lord, which he is to offer as a sin offering. Really a purification offering is, was, is uh, the sense of that word sin offering. While the goat designated by lot for Azazel shall be left standing alive before the Lord to make expiation with it, and to send it off to the wilderness for Azazel. When he was finished purging the shrine, we'll come back to that Azazel thing in a minute, because that's going to be important. When he is finished purging the shrine, the tent of meeting in the altar, the live goat shall be brought forward. Right? This is the second goat, the one that was set aside for Azazel. Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat, and confess over it all the iniquities and transgressions of the Israelites whatever their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and it shall be sent off to the wilderness through a designated man. Thus the goat shall carry on it all their iniquities to an inaccessible region, and the goat shall be free in the wilderness. And this shall be to you a law for all time, in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month. We talked about this seven-month business last time, um, so just uh, in short, the Torah's calendar cycle starts with uh, the month of Nisan which is the month in which the exodus took place so uh, by that count hold on one second by that count the 7th uh, month is the month of Tishrei um, in which we have the first day of the month is Rosh Hashanah, and the 10th day of the month is Yom Kippur there are four
2: different starts to
0: continue? Yes there are so in and last year we, we talked about them do you remember what they all are um, Rosh uh, L. El- Yeah, good, excellent. Okay, so anybody remember from last week what the fourth one was? Good, yeah, so the first of Elul is the new year for the tithing of animals. Okay, so that's the fourth New Year. Uh, but good, you have a New Year for animals, very nice. A New Year for, it's all in the family. A New Year for animals, uh, a New Year for trees, a New Year for uh, humanity, and a New Year for the Jewish people, basically, is how that works out. So good. Um, in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall practice self-denial. Uh, the Hebrew of that is ve'initem et nafshoteichem. Here it translates as, you shall practice self-denial. The literal translation of it is more like, you shall afflict your bodies. Right, you shall uh, you shall hurt yourselves. Yeah, that's why we don't wear leather shoes. Okay? That is well. So the the notion of you shall afflict yourselves, uh, or you should practice self denial, is a, a number of the prohibitions we have in Yom Kippur. Not wearing leather is one. Who wants to? Yeah. Good. Right. You can't anoint yourself with creams or oils or perfumes or things like that. What else? Yeah. Sure. Why not? Oh, yeah, David. Yeah. Okay, good, right, no adornments and things like that. I mean, there's a major one that I'm sure everyone just assumes is too obvious that you're not... Right, fat... So well, there were a bunch of things there. But fasting is a big one, right? Not eating, not drinking. That's, that's the sense of you shall afflict your bodies, yeah? Right, good, marital relations is the other one. Very nice. Um... Right, so that's what that's that's where we get from from that statement. You shall practice self denial. That's where we get all of those uh, uh, familiar laws of of Yom Kippur. Um, so it's interesting to think about that in the context of uh, what this text is teaching us. Okay, And what this text is exactly teaching us is, I think, uh, complicated. We're going to talk about it a little bit, but it's important to keep that in mind. We get those practices from this text, and in some ways this text is, whether or not it meant specifically those practices, certainly it meant some kind of um, physical withholding of things from ourselves on this day, which... Uh, includes these rituals, okay? So there's some link, some connection between the rituals that were happening in the temple with the high priest and these two goats um, and our personal observance, which, uh, which included some kind of self-denial, okay? Um, you shall do no manner of work, neither the citizen nor the alien who resides among you. For on this day, atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you of all your sins. You shall be clean before the Lord. I put that in bold, because every holiday has a tagline in the Jewish tradition, right? Um, The Torah is a good marketing uh, tool. So, uh, like, uh, uh, Sukkot, right, is, Vesamachta Bechagecha, you should rejoice on your holiday, right? Yom Kippur's tagline is this, and you'll see it throughout the Yom Kippur liturgy, if you're paying attention. Um, it's in Hebrew, it's, <laughs> On this day, atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you of all your sins. You shall be clean before the Lord. You might hear it like this,
3: right? It would be something like... Uh, Something like that, right? Except for
0: you'll hear from the cantor, it's sound much better. Okay, so um, it shall be a Sabbath of complete rest for you, and you shall practice self-denial. It is a law for all time. Again, it, with the self-denial business. This shall be to you a law for all time. Again, with the law for all time business. Okay, So no getting out of it this year, Okay, because it's still applicable. Okay, It's always going to be the case. Um, which is how, by the way, the rabbis said, even when we don't have a temple anymore, we still do Yom Kippur. It's a law for all time. It means we just adapted or adjusted a little bit in absence of the temple. But I, I, I do want us to think about this temple ritual, and we're going to look at some texts that deal with it in just a second, um, because I think embedded in it is a sense of what uh, the Torah, what God, what our ancestors wanted us to experience and get out of this day. And it it carries with it a value and a message that I think we're trying to get out. This shall be to you a law for all time to make atonement for the Israelites for all their sins once a year. All right, so the first thing, any, any before I go on, any, any thoughts, questions, comments? I'm sure, actually, maybe there's a lot, but uh, um, any any thoughts, questions, comments on that text so far? I have a question. Yeah, Laura. Um,
2: also, the goat is supposed to be a law for all time. Is that practiced
0: at all? Well, it's, um, <laughs> uh, so uh, I'm glad you mentioned it. So when it says this... Um, right? Uh, does it say specifically, ah, yeah, this shall be a law. Well, no, so it's so this translation connects this shall be a law to you for all time to in the seventh month, on the tenth of the month, you shall practice self-denial. Um, so I, I don't think that, at least not in this translation, the intention um, is to connect that back to the goat. Um, however, this is great. You should check this out, okay? There's this uh, organization called G-Dcast, Godcast, okay? So you go online. Just type in, in google g No, d don't spell dash like you do a dash g dash uh, d I think it's dot com but just google g dash d cast and they have a program for the high holidays called Escape goat have any of you heard of this no. Escape okay it's great it's um, it's like a cartoon goat and you can anonymously because it won't it doesn't have your identity you can you can confess your sins and put them on the goat and then, like, shove the goat off of a clip, right? So, um, <laughs> um uh, and if you want to, you don't have to do this, but if you want to, you can contribute, basically, they have, like, anonymous tweets of everybody's, uh, sins, right, going from the site, so you won't carry your name with it, um, but if you say, you know, like, I, um, I, you know, hit my neighbor's car and didn't leave a note, right? And then you, like, type that, you put that on the goat, someone did that to me, <laughs> you, uh, um, I forgive you, whoever that was. Um, I don't think it was anybody in this room. Uh, but you can you type that in; it goes on the goat, and you send the goat off. And then you can it also it can go into cyberspace without your name attached to it if you wanted to. Do you have a question?
2: Uh,
0: I just My question was: Does anybody have a question or comment? Oh, oh. D- is is the goat thing a law for all time?
2: I think uh, this is a It says law for all time, even if it was referring to that. Uh, probably be a law for all long time that we have the uh, temple, um, and so as long as we have that, it would still be a law. Just that right now we don't have that, so it still is technically a law. We just physically are not able to do that, but we're still technically supposed to.
0: Ah, uh, right. So it's the law. The law still is a law. It just uh, we don't have the tools to to fulfill it. Okay. Good. Good clarification. What was the reason for the go? Okay, so we're going to get into the reason for the he goats. That's a, that's ultimately, I think, the point of my of the whole talk tonight. So we're going to get into that. But uh, but by, by the way, you know that the, the whole the whole term scapegoat comes from this text, right? Yeah. You 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 basically blame a goat for all your sins and you kill it, right? That's what you do, yeah. You do ah, so it does have echoes of Tashlich in it. Um, as far as I've ever seen, there's ne- I've never seen a direct connection. Uh, talked about between these two uh, between those two practices. Um, usually, tashlich is, is uh, um, uh, connected back to a verse from Micah saying, "You shall cast out your sins uh, um, into into the water." Um, but you're right; it does have a lot of uh, similarities in, in practice. Um, so this week, bring this year, bring lamb to tashlich yeah. <laughs> Kappa That's called kappa Uh And kappa is, uh, and I've done. Uh, let's see if I can. Show, well, I'll, as I talk, I'll see if I can show you my picture of kappa Um I, I've done it before. It's uh, a little bit traumatic, but also really powerful. So I did it once in the hopes that I would never do it again, um, just to see, just to see what it's like, what the experience is like of um, of uh, forging a relationship with an animal, um, and then. Uh, then asking it to die for you, um, and that sounds kind of weird, but that's exactly what it felt like. Um, when we talk about sacrifice, um, it really—I mean—I I, I, mean—I I imagine our ancestors. I mean, uh, the, their, their animals were were um, were a part of their life, right? I imagine that's actually what it felt like, right? That it was actually a, a profound emotional experience. For a person to offer an animal sacrifice in the temple, it wasn't just like when we go to the grocery store and we pick up a package of steak and like there's no connection to any animal, living or dead, in that cellophane package of steak, right? That's not what the institution of sacrifice was. So um, let's see. Can I, well, it's taking a little while to look. Okay, uh, so right, so oh, Copper Road. So I didn't get kind of it, So Copper Road is uh, basically a reenactment of of a sacrificial system um, where you f- take a chicken and you you know confess your sins onto the chicken and you swing the chicken around your head and then somebody slaughters the chicken. Um, where I did it in Jerusalem, the chickens that are slaughtered go to charity, um, and I assume that's what happens in other places where where uh, the chickens slaughtered. You could sort of skip the middleman of the charity thing and just do the same ritual with uh, with with a bag of Coins or something like that, and that's what a lot of people uh, do. So we uh, serve it in Yiddish, not in
2: Hebrew.
0: How is it in Yiddish?
2: kaporas.
0: Ah, okay, shlach kaporas. Right. Um, hold on, I'm uh, got to get past embarrassing uh, uh, honeymoon
3: pictures here. Um, <laughs> 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 uh, let's see. Let's see.
0: Let's see here. Then now embarrassing pouring pictures. My computer is slow. Um, okay, all right. So let's uh, as I, as it's uh, scrolling. There, let's move on. Okay. So um, so the first thing I want to talk about is um, is this concept, is this term that we you know bandy about on uh, Yom Kippur. This term atonement. Okay, and I once, um, so I think maybe like my first year, here we go, um, let's see, I do full screen, how do you do full screen? How do you do full screen? Anybody know how to work this contraption?
2: Uh,
0: view, enter full screen, there we go. Okay. <laughs> So I don't know. If, so here we can. I don't know if you can really see it, but like, there's the. How do you how do you go to the next picture? Ah, there we go. Yeah. This is in Jerusalem in the Machane Yehuda market. So this is my friend Jesse, who's now a rabbi in uh, New Jersey, and this is me with my chicken. I think I named him. Uh, or her her there 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 she is that's my chicken this is me confessing my sins on the chicken there I am again
3: <laughs> and this is my friend Jesse confessing his sins on the chicken okay he's doing it and there you go okay now the chicken is about to meet his maker oh
0: I did not. Someone more qualified. Oh, wait. We just missed it. There. It, okay. That's the, that's, the, um, that's the action shot. Okay. Um, so that's that. Uh, but you can do it with money. <laughs> okay. So the, the term that gets bandied about a lot on Yom Kippur is... Kapara is atonement, right? That's what the word the name means. Yom Kippur. So, on some level, what uh, what the day is supposed to be about, and you see this reflected throughout the text, right? Especially in that tagline piece, that the day is about atonement being made. So, um, I. Uh, my first year, I think it was, um, as a rabbi, I was working in uh, at Har Zion in Philadelphia, and I was doing my alternative uh, high holiday services, which I uh, did for the past few years there. Um, and I wanted to have uh, everybody get an aliyah on the high holidays. So I came up with, like... Um, clever, oh, I thought they were clever, clever uh, um, mechanisms to get everybody up there. And so I would, I'd ask questions, you know, like if it was your birthday, um, if you, you know, this is your first time back in synagogue in a while, right? so I, lots of people came up. But the one that got, when people were honest, okay, it took a little while for people to like kind of get comfortable and be honest. But uh, when people were honest, the one that really got the most people up was, I keep on using the word atonement and have no idea what it means right? That's the one. So, okay, I want to look at um, uh, Rabbi, uh, Noam, Shalom Noach uh, Berzovsky, who's uh, known, we talked about him last week, the Nativo Shalom, uh, the Salon Um Merebi. And he says this, he calls atonement, uh, a day of atonement means a day of purification for the depths of the soul. For on this day atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you of all your sins you shall be clean before the Lord. That's the Yom Kippur tagline. We must understand the reason for Scripture's use of the precise term atonement and not terms like forgiveness or pardon. Right? The Torah could have called it Yom um, Slicha, right, the day, the day of forgiveness. It could have be uh, it could have been Yom Michilah, the day of uh, pardoning. It could have been. Um, uh, um, Yom Bakasha, could have been the day of like requesting for forgiveness, right? But that's not what it's called, it's called atonement. So we have to ask, he says, why the Torah chooses this word atonement. And we can explain it, so that gets to the core of what, is it, what does atonement mean. And we can explain it through the writings of the Chida, Chaim Yosef uh, David Azulay ben uh, Yitzchak Zerachia, in Nacho Kadmonim, it's an, uh, an earlier uh, rabbi, and his explanation of, you shall return to the Lord your God. That's in this week's Torah portion, uh, by the way. Uh, the, the phrase in Hebrew is, ad Adonai elohecha. You shall return, you shall turn back to the Lord your God. Right. And, uh, and so the, the notion of teshuvah, of repentance, and which is a part of the process of atonement, comes from that verse. That you should return to the Lord your God. So even though the sense of tshuva, as I mentioned before, is about stopping where you are and turning in a different direction, the direction, at least, from the foundational principle that the Torah brings out, what it's trying to communicate through it, and I think what's reflected in Rav Shlomo's song, going back to what we were talking about before, is that the direction of the return is to God. The direction of turning and returning is to God which is, I don't know, maybe different than I might have thought. Right? I might have thought that the direction is, whatever direction is the better direction in my life, whatever direction is uh, uh, repairing my relationships, whatever direction is um, uh, healing my, my broken heart, that's the direction I turn. Right? But the directionality that the Torah offers is that it's to God. Right? And of course God is uh, multi-directional, but the turning is, uh, is, is in that um, uh, thing that a byproduct of sin is that it brings about an external impurity to one's body and also an internal impurity that sullies one's soul right? so um, I don't know exactly what he means uh, uh, in the sense that uh, it brings out an external impurity to one's body maybe he's thinking that like your transgressions might harm you uh, harm the, the physical world harm your physical self um, harm other people in some way in a physical way right so you might um, you might not eat as well as you should right that's the sins right you're harming your body that's an easy one you might have uh, actually hit somebody and hurt somebody that's uh, maybe an easy one too so maybe that's what he has in mind there because I, I can't imagine that what he really means is that um, that when you sin you get ugly right or something like that um, uh, because empirical evidence would, would clearly show otherwise so I'm not exactly sure what he means but the, the second part of the statement is what I want to focus on that sinning isn't only an external phenomenon. Anytime we transgress, anytime we um, do um, what we oughtn't do, um, it causes a, um, a. It tarnishes our souls. It tarnishes our spirit. It's um. It's like. What? Yeah. So the, well, that's uh that's not the terminology he uses here because are external to you. Um. But uh, but. It does, it creates a, uh, um, a, a film, a barrier on your, on your soul, right? Right, okay, fine. So, um, but think about it like um, uh, like your car, right? A long time of not getting your car washed, right? So, for a couple of weeks, you know, you have like a, a kind of a fine layer of dust on it, right? And, uh, and your car still looks like your car. Right? But over time, it accumulates and builds up right? so that, um, uh, so that uh, first, um, not just a simple scrub will take it off. Right? You, need to, you need the heavy-duty stuff. You need to you know, take it to get detailed. So that's one. But the other maybe more dangerous thing, not for a car, but I mean you know, if you follow the metaphor, is that it starts to not really matter how dirty it gets. Because right? you say to yourself, this is so dirty. It can't get clean anymore, right? So that's what our tradition, I think, means in a lot of ways when it says "mitzvah um, uh, gorera, mitzvah aveira, gorera, aveira." Right? That a, 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 um, the performance of a commandment leads, draws you to more performance of the commandments, and the commission of a sin leads you to more sin, right? And if you think about that um, on a on a psychological level, there's a there's there's real profound truth to it, right? We we create um, we create our own habits, we create our own consequences, and we often sometimes get in patterns of behavior that were either um, uh, too stubborn or um, uh, too stuck to change. Right? So we start thinking to ourselves, we start rationalizing our, our behavior, or we don't even or worse, we don't even think about it at all. Right? And so we go down a certain path in life without really reflecting on it, without really thinking about it. And what actually ends up happening is we compound, um, uh, negative behavior upon negative behavior. And over time, the tarnish, uh, accumulates on our, on our spirit. Right? Our soul. That's what he's saying. He's like, and, I, and you can think about this metaphorically. You can think about it not in terms of your soul. You can think about it in terms of your heart if you want. You can think about it in terms of your brain chemistry if you want because our actions um, actually carve uh, um, uh, wrinkles into our brains. And um, it determines, um, it, that's why it's so hard to break habits and break patterns of behavior because after a certain time, they get ingrained into us right so if, if if souls not language that works for you don't think about soul think about heart think about um think about uh, uh mind think about um whatever is 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 essential to your being whatever you think is essential to your being that's what gets damaged through sin that's what gets damaged through transgression and through remorse and crying we purify the external flaw but the internal impurity can only be purified through the shining of the light of the divine presence that shines within a person. And that is what enables the powerful impurity to leave him. So think about this for a second. All this language that we do over the high holy days, talking about how we need to rectify the wrongs that we've done, how we need to do tshuva ourselves, how we need to... Uh, do cheshbon and nefesh, think about our lives, look at, at, at what we've done, think about our past year. think about our past years, and say where we missed the mark, where we failed, where are the relationships that need repair, what's broken in my life, and we think about that we're supposed to, and this is hard work, I mean, he's phrasing this as like, oh, it's kind of like the easy first step. This is hard work. We're supposed to be broken and feel broken and have our hearts ripped open about, the, about some of the messes we've made in our lives. And the process of tshuva on that level is about um, uh, uh, crying and remorse. But he says that's just the externalities of tshuva. That's just the externalities of our transgressions. That repairs the actions that we committed between each other right, or to a loved one, right? But there's more to it than that. There's more residual uh, transgression than that. That just takes care of a piece of it. But we still have to cleanse internally, right? And I think that that's really true because in chuva, we're not just apologizing for what we've done and pledging to never do it again, right? The process of chuva is supposed to be profoundly transformative. Right? It's a radical reorientation of our lives because a lot of times the, the external manifestation of a transgression is reflective of something that's actually really broken in us. Unless we dr- address what's really broken, we can't, we're going to be liable to do that same behavior over and over and over again. So I could apologize for the things that I did wrong. I can apologize for blowing up in anger when I got in here that the chairs weren't set up, whatever. I'm sorry, Wendy, and I'm sorry, Norma. I can apologize for that, but unless I actually investigate my heart and my soul and say, what is happening inside of me that leads me to get angry so quickly, then I haven't really resolved the problem. I might not blow up at Wendy again but I'm liable to blow up at somebody else. That's, I think, what he's getting at here. So we can cry and be remorseful over the actions we've done through the external manifestation of the transgression, but really, we need to look more inward and see what's in our hearts and see what's in our souls. And what he's saying is the way to purify our soul is through the shining of the light of the divine presence. By attuning ourselves to the way God manifests in our lives and invites us to live. That's different than saying, oh, I messed up, I hurt somebody, I'm going to apologize for it and not do it again. What this is, is turning ourselves around with God as the focal point, with God as the light forward, and that's pretty radical. And on this holy day, Yom Kippur, the light of the divine presence shines within the Jewish soul. And that overpowers and removes the internal impurity that has sullied the soul. And that's what atonement means. It's a total cleansing of sin. As if one had never been sullied by that sin. And that's, so that's I think, the, the real sense of it, right? If we actually... Purify what's going on inside of us. If we, in a certain sense, remake ourselves psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, then in a certain sense, it is as if we're a new creation. I mean, think about all of the patterns of behavior, the responses that are so deeply ingrained in us. Most of the time, they're actually um, uh, unconscious responses that are built into us through our reaction and our relationship with our parents in ways that most of us don't even recognize or realize. Right. So these the way we interact with people and react in the world has been built inside of us for a long time but if we're able to look into it and reorient ourselves with god as the focal point and the direction then we can actually be new beings we can actually be reborn we can start fresh what's that that's too stupid. it is a huge it, task it is a huge task, it a huge
1: said, task.
0: yeah yeah, no, it's true. Um, the benefit of being a little older is that you have, the, um, you have years of seeing um, how uh, your uh, behavior has hurt you and other people, and the perspective to be able to say, um, you know what? This is not the way I want to live anymore, um, because it's not how I want to be remembered. right? And when you're 18, um, you don't have quite that perspective. So it may be easier to change when you're 18. Right, but uh, but in a certain sense, very few eighteen-year-olds actually change. Right, and uh, and 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 so the the benefit of being later on in, in our lives is that we um I think we actually have more of a capacity to change, even though the patterns are more deeply rooted. So it's harder to um, extricate ourselves from them, but not impossible. And
2: actually, there's another actually There's a, there's a um, there's opportunities for, as you might say in your analogy, daily car washing. You do not have to do three times a day if you went through it. In the Shimon answer, the Asylum, you need it. Uh, every day, there's a small paragraph section where we do uh, what's called the P.O.D. Bang your chest, and you touch over your sins, and you can it the day before. If you do once a week, how much time uh, you feel, but like there's three, in every week, you say the short the Three in all, three dollars uh, every day, and that's a uh, small sweet. So it's not yeah. the kippers is supposed to be. Well, I'll save up everything, and then I'll just say it all in, and it'll be fine. You can. There is opportunities for all the time to do that. So it's not a, a huge thing. The overall um,
0: and, yeah. uh, and in fact, and in fact, the the there's a great passage in the Mishnah um, that says. The one who says, I will sin and then I will repent, actually has no ability to do repentance. The one who says, I will sin and Yom Kippur will uh, atone for me, that person doesn't get atoned for in Yom Kippur. And and that, well, I don't think that's only in a mystical sense, right? Somebody who commits transgressions with the mind of, like, yeah, I'll make up for it later, right? Uh, down the line, I'll just, you know, I'll save it all up. I love this one the Simpsons. Uh, Bart Simpson uh, says once that uh, he's going for the lifetime of sin followed by the presto change of deathbed repentance, right? Um, um, so, uh, uh, so, right, but that person, that kind of person, actually doesn't have the capacity, the Mishnah says, to to change. Right? Only person who looks at their lives and says, I don't want to um, hurt myself or other people. I don't want to make the world uh, um, a, a worse off place by my presence here. Um, and periodically, I, I miss the mark in that, but I'm going to try to change who I am and make up for it. That's the person who has the capacity to do it. Right? And here it's even saying something a little bit deeper, that there's something specific and powerful about Yom Kippur itself. That shines this light, that opens us up. Right here, it's maybe a little bit mystical, saying Yom Kippur kind of does this for us, right? But I like to think of it a little bit more like Yom Kippur opens up a wider opportunity for us to do this for ourselves. And 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 uh, if we go on a little bit more, I'll, I'll show you why I think that, and uh, and then also how it relates to the uh, to the scapegoats. Okay, in the last uh, ten minutes that we have. Okay, so Nachmanides now. To hold what what uh, the solumer Rebbe uh, had to say in you know in in the back of your mind, Nachmanides, Rebbe uh, uh, Moshe ben uh, Nachman, uh, medieval Spanish uh, commentator, is commenting on this ritual of the scapegoat. Okay, here's what he says, and it is explained further in Pirkei de Rebi Eliezer. Right, actually I have to go back a second. So you remember that in the ritual of the scapegoat, one of the goats goes to God and the other goes to Azazel, right? Um, and what is Azazel? I don't know, right? That's really the, uh, the issue. I'm sure that the uh, authors of the Torah knew exactly what Azazel was. It is a mystery to uh, biblical scholars, um, uh, ancient, medieval, and modern uh, exactly what the Torah had in mind by uh, Azazel, although I will say that if you uh, go to uh, Israel, um, and I hope you all do, um, that uh, a very colorful expression that you can say to somebody is Lech Azazel, uh, which uh, means, you know, some version of go to something or go do something to yourself. Um, and uh, and, I remember, and I remember watching a movie once when I was in Israel. <laughs> And I remember watching a movie once when I was in Israel, and uh, the character's name in the movie was Azazel, or something like that. And the uh, subtitle on the movie in my hotel room was Lechla Azazel, Azazel, which I thought was great. So, okay, so we don't really know what Azazel is, so Nachmanides is going to try to explain what it is. Okay, that's what he's going to try to do. Um, because that's the most confusing part of the scapegoat ritual, I think. Because if you just say, okay, the ritual is about um, uh, uh, having one goat offered as a sacrifice to God, and one goat is like a sin offering um, that carries all of our iniquity, and we sacrifice that too, that may be, that's a little bit, at least within the context of the Torah, that's a little bit uh, more straightforward. But here we have this whole other element of Azazel and sending to the wilderness, and what does this all mean, okay? So here's what Nachmanity says, and it's explained further in Pirkei to Rabbi Eliezer, that they would give a bribe to Samael on Yom Kippur. Samael is um another word for the devil, for Satan. You know, remember the, the the devil that we're not supposed to believe in as Jews, it turns out that we actually have it. Um uh, so in the uh in in the in the Bible it's known as Hasatan, uh which is like the 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 accuser or the prosecutor. The function of this entity is not like to be the prince of darkness, it's um to basically when we're standing before the heavenly tribunal to to prosecute us, right? They're the ones saying, you shouldn't let this person into heaven. This person doesn't deserve it. Here's all the terrible things that that person did in their life, right? Um, God, if you if you let this person into heaven, it's going to be a total miscarriage of justice, right? They're prosecuting you. I'm not sure who defends you. I think you are your own defender. It's uh, not a very fair system, but anyway. Okay, so Samael um, is, uh, so we give a bribe to Samael on Yom Kippur so he would not nullify their sacrifice. By the way, I just realized what I cut out of here just because I wanted to have it on front and back. So he uh, says, Azazel is a synonym or another name for Samael. Okay, So Samael is, uh, is another name for Azazel. So meaning when it says, send the goats out. You have one goat going to God and one goat going to Satan. That's what you have. When Samael would see that no sin was to be found on them, uh, uh, in them on Yom Kippur. Okay, So remember, they put all of their sins on this goat and this goat goes out into the wilderness, right, to, uh, to Azazel. Right, and Azazel sees this goat and says, ooh, the Jews just sent me a goat. I'm going to go check in on them and see what's happening. He goes and looks at them, and voila, all their sins are gone because they're all on this goat, right? And so he looks at the Jews and he says, no, sees no sin was to be found on them on Yom Kippur. And he would say to the Holy One of blessing, majesty of all the universe, you have one people on earth, like the ministering angels in heaven, just as the ministering angels stand barefoot, so do the Jewish people stand barefoot on Yom Kippur. Barefoot uh, is uh, they used to all they used to wear were leather sandals or nothing, right? So when we say we don't wear leather on Yom Kippur um, and we put on like nice sneakers, um, uh, that's you know sort of a, our way of adapting to what they would have done back then, which is like not wear shoes at all. Okay, so, um, so they're barefoot on Yom Kippur. That's uh, I, there, there definitely are definitely your sources that say that, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but even if they were only barefoot, um, it would have been affliction enough if you ever walked around, you know, um, uh, uh you know, rocky terrain barefoot versus in leather sandals. It uh, doesn't feel so nice. So, um, uh, and plus people back then had stinky feet, they didn't bathe a lot, so it's, just, you know, it's not just affliction for you, it's like the person next to you.
3: Okay, so, um,
0: just as the ministering angels stand barefoot, so do the Jewish people stand barefoot on Yom Kippur. Just as the ministering angels do not eat or drink, so do the Jewish people neither eat nor drink on Yom Kippur. Just as the ministering angels do not leap, so do the Jewish people stand on their feet on Yom Kippur. Just as peace is to be found among the ministering angels so is peace found among the Jewish people on Yom Kippur. Just as the ministering angels are clean of all sin, so are the Jewish people clean of all sin on Yom Kippur. And the Holy One of Blessing hears testimony about the Jewish people from their prosecutor. Right, so imagine the prosecutor in the courtroom saying, I actually have no case here. Right? These people are fine, upstanding citizens. Right? They are as good as the angels that minister to you. And so the Holy One of Blessing hears testimony about the Jewish people from their prosecutor and atones for the altar, for the sanctuary, for the priests, and for all the people of the congregation. As it is said, God shall purge the innermost shrine. God shall purge the tent of meeting and the altar. And God shall make expiation for the priests and for all the people of the congregation. And just so it wasn't explicitly clear, Judah Halevi, who's another uh, medieval um, Sephardic uh, uh, philosopher and legalist, uh, puts it in the following way. They fast, Jews fast on this day, to, a- to approach a resemblance to the angels. Inasmuch as the fast is, con- is consummated by humbling themselves, lowering their heads, standing, bending their knees, and singing hymns of praise, then all the physical powers abandon their natural functions and engage in spiritual functions as though having no animal nature. This is, I think, what Nachmanis and the Yehuda Levi get at, is the essence of what that scapegoat ritual, I think, is trying to get at. And what I think we can understand Rabbi Shlomo to have meant when he says, return again to the land of your soul." what it seems to me like the scapegoat ritual is trying to show is that who we experience ourselves as being most of the time, during most of the year, is actually an illusion, a distraction from who we really are. And on Yom Kippur, at least for this one day a year, we get to be who we were born to be. We get to be who we are at our core. We get to shake off those things that weigh us down and hold us back. We get to shake off our desires, our lusts, our fears, um, in some senses, our passions that time and again lead us astray. This is what Yehuda lady was saying, that uh, as though they have no animal nature. I'm not so sure I would go that far because I think there's some very important things that we have that are part of our animal nature. Um, but they lived in a world where there was a very clear um, body and soul split uh, in their in their conception of uh, metaphysics. And so there was like your animal body and then your godly soul. And if you just get rid of your animal body and you leave your godly soul, that's all you need. That doesn't really lead to a lot of good places that you end up with like, uh, you, know, um, uh, you know, self-mortification and things like that if you follow that path too far. So you don't, I don't think, have to go that far. But just to say that if you say that, that our animal cells represent those parts of us that are... Um, um, more instinctive than conscious. Those parts of us that are more about our appetites than about our morals and our values. I love that. I mean, Einstein says they're basically the same thing, but Right, but, 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 but it also, Einstein talks about relativity, right? And it's how you think about yourself, right? So if you think about yourself as, I love the way the, my, one of my teachers, Remy Figelson, phrases it this way. Are you a, are you a, uh, physical being having a spiritual experience? Or are you a spiritual being having a physical experience? And Yom Kippur opens the opportunity to look at yourself as a spiritual being having a physical experience. And so the rituals of the scapegoat that we now adapt in different ways in our own Yom Kippur liturgy, but the essence of the day is to get to the core, get back to the core of who we are. To say the physical experience that we're having um, is important and real in certain ways and, and valuable in many ways, but it's not the essence of who we are. The essence of who we are is... Essentially, no less than to be God's angels. That's who we really are. And Yom Kippur gives us the opportunity to step back and to physically reenact and to physically live the notion of being one of those angels. It's why we fast on Yom Kippur. It's why we stand in prayer on Yom Kippur. It's why we don't engage in uh, marital relations on Yom Kippur. It's why we wear white on Yom Kippur, at least one of the reasons that we do all of those things. Because we remind ourselves that the, um, the, the day-to-day lives that we have, the hungers and grievances and grudges and pains that so often trip us up, are not the core of who we are. And Yom Kippur gives us the opportunity to expose the reality and the core of who we are, which are spiritual beings. Look at what is said in Genesis chapter 1. Remember, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And God created man, humanity, in God's image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Being created in the image of God, I think, of course, can be understood in a lot of ways, but if you really understand that, in in some senses, in in its most literal way, then what it means to be created in the image of God is to be created as a being of pure goodness and pure light, right? And if we want to get more concrete about what it means to be an angel, look at a, a definition of, or study of angels in the Jewish tradition. The Hebrew word malach, comes from a root meaning to send and is used both in the ordinary sense of a messenger and in the sense of an angel sent by God. So in our tradition, an angel is a malach, which means an entity that has a very specific and clear uh, task that they are called, each of them, to do by God. And if you look at the thrust of our tradition, that is precisely what the Torah and Rubinics say about each and every one of us. That we are charged with holy missions, godly missions in this world. To live a life of of holiness, and to make the world a more fitting place for the divine. And in that sense, we are all of us, Malachim, angels. We forget that during the year because we're so wrapped up in so many other things. We're so set in patterns of behavior, Yom Kippur, we put on the clothes of an angel, we eat like an angel, don't eat like an angel, we live like an angel. It's sort of like method acting, right? To remind us that this is who we are. We become that script. References to angels are found throughout the Bible, but with the exception of Gabriel and Michael in the late book of Daniel, the angels in the Bible have no name, right? So, Think about that for a second. What does it mean to be an angel? It means, in a certain sense, to not be wrapped up in our individual uniqueness. There's importance to our uniqueness. There's importance to our unique characters and our unique capabilities. But on Yom Kippur, we step back from that. We actually level the playing field. We all wear white. Right? We all are standing in the same room. We're all hungry and agitated. Right? We're all flipping through the, flipping through the machzor, it, And, and this is, I think, uh, reflected in what Nachmanides says in here, right? That there's peace among the Jewish people during Yom Kippur. Right? Peace is, in a lot of words, affected when people say, I'm not better than you are. I don't want what you have. I'm not going to try to take from you what you have. I'm not, Threatened by you wanting to take what I have. And that's, I think, encapsulated in this idea of, at least for a day, imagine what it's like to have no name. To have no identity other than Malach. That you are just God's messenger. Tomorrow, think about how to do it in the Betty Rose way. Tomorrow, think about how to do it in the Chick way. Tomorrow, think about how to do it in the Sarah way. Tomorrow, you'll think about how to apply it specifically to your life. But today, you are just messenger. According to Maimonides, angels are creatures possessing form without matter. That's sort of like what Gary was saying, energy without matter. They are pure spirits differentiated from one another, not by any bodily distinctions, but solely by spiritual form and purpose. Right? How you're dressed what kind of car you drove to synagogue in, what kind of house you came from, what kind of job you had, whether you got fired in this past year, whether you got promoted in this past year, whether you've experienced a loss, whether you won the lottery, none of that matters on Yom Kippur. On Yom Kippur, one thing matters. What is your mission? What is your task that you were put on this earth to do? That's what matters on Yom Kippur. And during the year, we forget about that. We forget about our missions. We forget about our tasks because we're so wrapped up in everything. So Yom Kippur comes once a year to send our goatiness into the wilderness. And to have even our prosecutors look at us and say, those are beings of pure light. Because indeed, that is what we are. And in, and, and that thought reminds me of maybe my favorite scene. In my favorite movie of the Star Wars trilogy, say the best one, in case anybody knows, is Empire Strikes Back. Okay, It's the most deeply spiritual one. Uh, we can talk about it later if you want, um, but you're wrong if you have another opinion. So, uh, <laughs> 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 um, um, but here is what Yoda says to Luke Skywalker in The Empire Strikes Back. And Yoda, by the way, think about this. Yoda. What's the Hebrew word for knowledge? Da'at, yodea, right? Um, George Lucas did his homework, right? And um, there's a lot um, that's Jewishly reflected in the Star Wars trilogy. This is, I think, one of them, and I think really at the core of Yom Kippur and what we're talking about tonight. So I'll let Yoda have the last word. I apologize to Lucasfilm, I don't have the rights to this. <laughs> right. I can't. It's too late. I respect your stack. Look at me. You crazy. have the checks on the freezer. So he says, Luke just says to him, you don't have this text, Luke just says to him, you want the impossible. Right. Um, so actually, I'm going to stop here. Um, so Yoda uh, lifts the, Luke's ship out of the water, which Luke was unable to do, um, and Luke says, I don't believe, I don't believe it, and Yoda says, and that is why you fail." So the essence of what Yoda is teaching, and I think what Yom Kippur is getting at, is that unlike Luke, we need to be able to believe that we are, at our core, beings of pure light and energy. We are beings put on this earth as God's angels with unique and holy missions and purposes. Our lives during the year can distract us though they can in some ways guide us. But Yom Kippur offers us the opportunity to return to who we are at our core and through knowing that that's who we are, be lifted up and directed to being in the rest of the year who we are called to be. So maybe you'll uh, join with me in singing as we close uh, Reb Shlomo's Return Again,
3: top of page one. Return again. Return again, return to the land of your soul. Return again, return again, return to the land of your soul. Return to who you are, return to what you are, Return to where you are born and reborn again. Return to who you are. Return to what you are. Return to where you are born and reborn again. Return again. Return again. again. Return to the land of your soul. Shana Tova, Happy
0: New Year, Gamar Tima Tova. May you be inscribed for goodness, for life, and for peace.